there may be teardrops to shed so while there's moonlight and music and love and romance let's face the music and dance dance let's face the music and dance Hello, I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to Let's Face the Music, a podcast exploring the stories behind the standards of the great American songbook. There may be teardrops to shed, so while there's moonlight and music and love Are you ready? Let's face the music. Today's song is My Favorite Things, music by Richard Rogers, words by Oscar Hammerstein II, and performed by John Coltrane. This is John Coltrane and his quartet performing My Favorite Things from his album of the same name. You might guess that innovative saxophonist John Coltrane chose to perform My Favorite Things due to the popularity of this version from the film The Sound of Music. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so. But you would be wrong. John Coltrane recorded his version of My Favorite Things five years before Julie Andrews and children dressed in clothes made from curtains graced the silver screen. In fact, the song originated in a very successful Broadway musical that did not star Julie Andrews. And the song was not originally sung on a stormy night, with seven children hogging their new governess's bed. The story of My Favorite Things is really the story of two artists. A man who was encouraged to take chances and break rules, and a woman who was initially dismissed for being too high a risk by someone solely concerned with making money. On a spring afternoon in 1962, Julie Andrews was sitting with her husband, Tony Walton, in her talent agent's office. Suddenly, two younger agents burst into the room, clearly excited about something. Walking past Andrews and Walton, one agent loudly exclaimed, We did it! We did it! We got the part for Audrey! This fleeting moment, lasting only a few seconds, was more devastating to Julie Andrews than these two agents could have known, and it would put into action a chain of events that would go on to shape her career. But who is Audrey? What part did they get for her? And what did it have to do with Julie Andrews? To understand, let's start at the very beginning. 
The musical version of George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, titled My Fair Lady, opened on Broadway in 1956. The role of Cockney flower girl Eliza Doolittle, who is transformed to pass as a proper lady, was played by a 21-year-old Julie Andrews. She was the first Eliza. My Fair Lady made lots of money on Broadway, and pretty soon Warner Brothers was paying around $5 million for the rights to make the film version. But when casting for this film began, studio president Jack Warner felt that Julie Andrews wasn't famous enough for the starring role. Warner wanted to be sure he would make his money back. It is true that at the time, Julie Andrews had never been in a movie. She had only been seen on the stage. But the popularity of this musical with Julie Andrews in it cannot be denied. The original cast recording was the best-selling album in 1956. Julie Andrews was nominated for a Tony in 1957. She played this role on Broadway and in London's West End for over three years, and she was absolutely adored in the role of Eliza Doolittle. Even so, Jack would not take a chance on Julie. Instead, Jack Warner chose Audrey Hepburn for the role, because she was a huge film star, and surely she could sing as well as Julie Andrews, right? Producers soon found that was not the case. Audrey Hepburn's recordings of the songs for My Fair Lady were not all that the filmmakers had hoped, so they called in their secret weapon, a singer named Marnie Nixon. Marnie Nixon was the woman the studios hired when they realized their leading lady's actual singing voice wasn't going to work. Nixon had a gorgeous singing voice, but she also had a talent for being able to match her singing to the way a particular actress spoke. Audiences didn't know someone else was singing in these films until the truth came out much later. Over the years, Marnie Nixon was the singing voice of Deborah Carr in The King and I. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Of Natalie Wood in West Side Story. Tonight, tonight, there's only you and it seemed she was desperately needed for My Fair Lady. So, with the magic of Marnie, this... Don't talk of love, too tight. Make me no undying me ...became this... Don't talk of love, lasting through time. Make me no undying Coincidentally, Marnie Nixon would make her on-screen debut in the film of The Sound of Music as one of the nuns who is trying to solve a problem like Maria. She's the nun who sings the Will of the Wisp lyric. After Julie Andrews was not chosen to star in the film version of My Fair Lady, she was asked many, many times how she felt about such a slight. But no matter how she truly felt about the role going to Audrey Hepburn, who didn't even do her own singing, Andrews always took a gracious and humble stance. And while it might have hurt at the time, being overlooked led to bigger things. For only by not playing Eliza Doolittle in the film version of My Fair Lady, she now had the availability to make her film debut in Mary Poppins. Michael Parkinson asked her about being passed over for the role when she appeared on his talk show in 1974. You must have been very resentful about that. Ah... Uh... I wasn't really resentful because I did understand why. I, I hadn't ever made a film before and was a complete unknown as far as films were concerned. Uh, I was disappointed. Uh, I mean, I would have loved to have done it, obviously, and uh, was hoping that I might be asked. 
But uh, it's hard to be resentful when right around the corner Walt Disney happened to be waiting and asked me to do Mary Poppins. And so, uh, no, I couldn't be that disappointed after that. I mean, that resentful after that. And when she spoke to Dick Cavett, he did the same. Why did you not make the movie of My Fair Lady? It's never been completely explained to me. It's very simple. Uh, I had never made a movie. Yeah. Uh, I was not a star. I was not box office. But you were, you were the star of it on Broadway. Yeah, but, Everybody but, had bought the record. But people on Broadway or around Broadway might know, but certainly people out in the middle of America and out here and di didn't know me from Adam, you know. Yeah. And so I, I, I understand it. But I'll never forget Harrison. it, but I understand it. You'll never forget it. Well, you, you must have been really sore at the time, because well, it was certainly it, your part. Well, it's nice to have the kind of compensation that I had, which was Mary Poppins. Yeah. And uh, so I felt, you know, kind of... Was that decision by, made by one man or a group of people? Or? I don't really know. Um, I Honestly, I, I don't know why. Maybe I was silly, but I didn't really hold out much hope for it. I mean, I didn't think that, that I would get it just because mm -hmm. I, I, I knew I'd never made a film and uh, how could I and all that kind of thing. But, of course, she did know the man who had made that decision. When Julie Andrews won the Best Actress Golden Globe for Mary Poppins in 1965, this was her acceptance speech. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time. Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. Did you hear the woman shriek in the audience? Because Jack Warner had nothing to do with Mary Poppins, everyone saw this as the cheeky statement it was, basically saying, thanks a lot, Jack, because you didn't choose me. I won for a different film. Julie Andrews' second most famous Broadway role was that of Queen Guinevere in Camelot, written by Lerner and Lowe, and opening on Broadway at the end of 1960. A very important role for Julie Andrews. Even Walt Disney found time to go see Andrews and the exploits of the Knights of the Round Table. I went uh, to New York and I caught the performance of Camelot. Of course, I'd heard the records and things, but it was Camelot that I saw her in. After seeing Julie Andrews' performance, Walt Disney knew he had found his Mary Poppins. When Jack Warner was making a film version of Camelot in 1967, he very much wanted to have Andrews reprise her stage role. By then, she had successfully starred in multiple films. But whether it was a further act of revenge on Jack Warner, or that she would rather originate new roles instead of revisiting ones she played seven years ago, Julie Andrews turned Jack Warner down and Guinevere would be played in the film by Vanessa Redgrave. Of course, the story of My Favorite Things really starts long before all of this. In 1926, a woman named Maria entered a Salzburg monastery, hoping to become a nun. She ended up instead marrying a naval commander whose last name was Trapp and had seven children. The family began singing together, adding three more children, and the Trapp family singers became famous the world over. Maria von Trapp wrote a memoir which was made into a German film in 1956 called The Trapp Family. Actress Mary Martin loved the film and tracked Maria down in Austria to discuss having a musical written which would be based on her life story. Maria agreed, thinking that her charity work would be helped by any success from the musical. The original idea was to use songs that the Trapp family had actually sung. 
Writers Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss would write the story, or the book as it's known in musical theater. And oh, perhaps successful songwriters Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein would come up with an original song or two. But no. Rodgers and Hammerstein refused to participate unless they were allowed to write all original music for the production. Richard Rodgers was a composer who had great success writing with lyricist Lawrence Hart in the early 20th century until Hart's death in 1943. Oscar Hammerstein II was a lyricist who had a number of hits with composer Jerome Kern until Lorenz Hart died and suddenly Richard Rodgers needed someone to write words for his beautiful melodies. As a team, Rodgers and Hammerstein had a string of popular musicals you certainly know. Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, and The King and I, to name a few. This new production, originally called The Singing Heart, opened on Broadway in 1959 as The Sound of Music, with Mary Martin playing the part she wanted all along, Maria Von Trapp. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Martin was very popular in the role and would go on to win the 1960 Tony for Best Performance by a leading actress in a musical. But when the film version went into production and casting began, Mary Martin was not considered to bring the role of Maria to the screen, and it's hard to know exactly why. When casting began, she was 50 years old, so perhaps producers felt she was a little old for a young nun turned nanny. Or maybe everyone knew she wasn't interested. By 1965, Mary Martin had begun preparing for the lead role of Jerry Herman's Hello, Dolly! for its London stage premiere. She seemed to have moved on from Maria von Trapp. So, by some sort of musical karma, the lead role went to Julie Andrews, who, incidentally, wasn't sure she should take it. Andrews writes in her 2019 memoir, Homework, about she and her husband Tony Walton seeing Mary Martin in The Sound of Music. Tony and I had seen The Sound of Music on Broadway, and I'm ashamed to admit that at the time we weren't wildly impressed. We loved the music, but the show seemed rather saccharine to us, so much so that Carol Burnett and I did a spoof of it called The Pratt Family Singers in our 1962 television special. We are the happy Swiss family Pratt. We bring you a happy song that I used to sing when I was a happy nun back home in Switzerland. Goat's milk and yogurt and good gluten bread Puddings and starches and dumplings like lead The, the things, things we like best are these Pigs, meat and cheese Knitting and tattoo Who could have predicted then, as we gleefully indulged in satire, that I would be invited to help bring this now classic musical to the screen. In addition to this comedic send-up, clearly a parody of my favorite things, Julie Andrews participated in an event the previous Christmas that perhaps foretold her future film role. In the early 1960s, she was a frequent guest on the CBS Variety program hosted by comedian Gary Moore. And on his 1961 Christmas special, viewers were treated to this singer performing this song, for the very first time. Rain drops on 
The Sound of Music film producers say they first spotted Julie Andrews in Mary Poppins, but it's quite likely they saw this Gary Moore show performance three years before casting began for the film, and it stayed in their minds, subconsciously realizing they found the perfect Maria. The stage musical of The Sound of Music is different than the film version in many ways. Remember that Julie Andrews was concerned that the stage musical was too saccharine, overly sweet. But director Robert Wise and producer Saul Chaplin promised their lead actress that huge efforts would be made to tone down the sentimentality. Also, three songs were cut completely, replaced by Maria's guitar-swinging song, I Have Confidence, and the love duet, Something Good. Both hard to imagine not being in the musical from the beginning. But the most surprising change is where My Favorite Things shows up in the film. Rodgers and Hammerstein's original goal for the song was for it to be sung very early on, when Maria is still at the Abbey. She and the Mother Abbess sing the song together, recalling a song they both knew as children. Not very exciting. But the film's screenwriter was Ernest Lehman, famous for writing the screenplay of North by Northwest for Alfred Hitchcock. Lehman decided to position the song during a frightening thunderstorm as a way for Maria to bond with the children for the first time. He also changed the way Maria would begin the song, as Julie Andrews explains in her memoir. Ernest Lehman, our screenwriter, disliked when characters in musicals burst into song without warning, and he wanted to avoid having to write cliched dialogue to facilitate a segue to the music. So he suggested that I simply speak the first phrase of My Favourite Things as a continuation of dialogue, then, once the orchestra established itself, ease into singing. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. I was very pleased because it felt more real to me when the song grew organically out of the story. Richard Rogers was known for writing melodies fairly quickly. But Oscar Hammerstein liked to take his time with the lyrics. And his slow and steady approach obviously paid off. Pianist and great American songbook ambassador Michael Feinstein talked about the evolution of My Favorite Things at the Library of Congress in 2014. This is a song that Oscar Hammerstein worked a long time on. It was several days, but it was a process that he had to go through to get to the final idea for the thing. And the first thing that you'll notice looking at this bunch of his lyric sheets is that the folder in which these lyrics repose says, good things. That's crossed out, and below it, in ink, it says, my favorite things. But the original idea, as he started to work on this lyric, was a list of good things, good things that she liked. It's true the song is often mocked for this list of things that praises the ordinary, the commonplace, but that's really its charm. The point is that Maria's favorite things were simple pleasures. Michael Feinstein continues as he looks over the original lyric sheets. In many of the instances of the lyric sheets that survive, he dated them. And this is dated June 26th, presumably 1959. And he lists good things. Kittens, mittens, snowflakes, laughter, merry-go-rounds, and, and so on. So he's just starting the process of figuring out what kind of form this thing is going to take. 
But then Feinstein gets to the lyric sheet where the song really begins to come into focus. He has typed a bunch of these lyrics that really start to put the song into form. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, curling my fingers in warm woolen mittens, and so on. But the other thing that is very significant about this particular sheet, he originally has, these are a few of the things that I like, and then next to it in ink it says, my favorite things, Eureka. That's the thing that he was looking for, because things that I like had to be a working lyric. In other words, something that he probably wasn't going to settle on because it doesn't sing easily in the mouth. Things that I like, the word like, it cuts off and you cannot sustain it. The word things, these are a few of my favorite things you can sustain, and there's a big difference for a singer. And Hammerstein, having written so many lyrics through the years, knew that things would sing much better than like. Hammerstein really embraced this technique of choosing a word that was very singable to end a vocal line after he felt he made the wrong decision in a song more than a decade earlier. A song from their musical Carousel called What's the Use of Wondering? He explained his error in judgment in a 1960 interview. And I have a theory of why perhaps it didn't uh, succeed commercially where uh, it uh, seemed to do so well within the play. And it may be the very last word in the refrain. The very last word is talk, T-A-L-K. He's your fellow and you love him and all the rest is talk. Now that is exactly what I wanted the character to say. That's just what she would say. And um, I liked the line and I still like it. But from a technical standpoint, that is not an applause getting line because of the last word talk, the K cuts off the word very sharply and shortly. So you can't sing it. You can't sing it out for applause. At the time I wrote the song, I was perfectly conscious of this uh, risk. But if you know a good deal about the technique of songs, one of the uh, pleasures in working is to break the rules every once in a while, see if you can get away with it. I broke this rule, and I think I did not get away with it. When it came to my favorite things, Oscar Hammerstein knew how the verses needed to end to become applause-getting lines. And we still applaud him today. John Coltrane was born in 1926 and grew up in North Carolina. As a teenager, his family moved to Philadelphia, and for his 17th birthday, his mother bought him an alto saxophone. He enlisted in the Navy in 1945 and started playing with the Navy-based swing band, but only as a guest performer. The band was made up of entirely white musicians, and as a black man, Coltrane could not officially join. He was discharged the following year and returned to Philadelphia, immersing himself in the city's jazz and bebop scene. He played with all of his idols, Charlie Parker, Eddie Vinson, Dizzy Gillespie, and before long he got a call from trumpeter Miles Davis to join his new quintet, and would go on to be featured on a number of Davis albums in 1956. Working with so many different musicians clearly opened Coltrane's ears to a vast array of musical styles, something the saxophonist would become known for. Bruce Irvin is a Nashville multi-instrumentalist who began playing saxophone in middle school. He was drawn to John Coltrane very early on due to this stylistic variety. When I was in like seventh or eighth grade, my excellent band director, uh, Mr. Knight, gave us an assignment 
to do a presentation on someone who played our instrument. So as a saxophone player, I had to search for a saxophone player that would be worth talking about. And I remember going to my friend Sean O'Malley's house and he played trombone and we were both like, who the hell plays saxophone trombone? Like who are we going to talk about for this? And uh, John Coltrane seemed like the person I could make the best presentation about because every song we'd pick for John Coltrane sounded so much different from the other one. So we do one song and it was like a nice ballad and we do another one and it was like hard bop, like super technical and fast, fast changes and stuff. And then you'd get to some stuff where he's just screeching and like doing this wild improvisation. And it was just like, wow, there's a lot to talk about with this guy. He's like got such a wide breadth of style. When Coltrane signed to Atlantic Records in 1959, his contract came complete with two brave risk takers. The president of the label, Ahmet Erdogan, who signed him, and even more so, Ahmet's brother, Nesui Erdogan, who began working closely with Coltrane, producing his recording sessions for Atlantic. Nesui Erdogan immediately recognized something unique about John Coltrane's playing. Coltrane was creating a sound that communicated emotion. Bruce Irvin certainly agrees. Hearing him totally changed the way I approached the instrument. I never really considered that you can like make it this kind of like noisy, like when I talked about screeching, he did things that were just like more based on feeling and emotion than was based on technicality, but he had the technique down to do it. So it was very admirable, something that I definitely still use. Yeah, he totally opened up my world to playing saxophone with more of a like range of ideas, not just saying, oh, this is going to sound nice over these chords, but is this going to convey the feeling that I'm trying to share? Nesui Erdogan encouraged Coltrane to play and record the way the saxophonist wanted to. He loved being surprised by these sounds he had never heard before. Because, you see, where Jack Warner didn't believe in Julie Andrews' talent or ability to make money for him, Nesui Erdogan believed fully in John Coltrane. He believed in any artistic risk Coltrane chose to take, including the decision to record his own spin on a certain song that was considered by some to be a very square, white bread, even hokey tune. In May of 1960, John Coltrane began a regular engagement in New York City at a Lower East Side club called the Jazz Gallery. By August of 1960, he had cemented the quartet of McCoy Tyner on piano, Steve Davis on bass, and Elvin Jones on drums. The story goes that one night at the Jazz Gallery, a song plugger handed Coltrane the sheet music for My Favorite Things and told him he should try it out. It's unclear whether Coltrane was very familiar with the song, but he must have liked what he saw on the paper. Was it the bouncy melody he knew he could do wonders with on the saxophone? Was it the meter of the song, a straight waltz that he felt he could really make swing? Or perhaps Coltrane found the song to be very lyrical, even if he would be performing it without any lyrics. This lyrical quality is something he seemed to be looking for, as he confessed in a 1960 interview with Carl Eric Lindgren. Uh, you claim that you were trying to, to get, a, a, as I understood it, a, a more beautiful sound. Would I you hope me to. with that? Well, I, I hope to play uh, not necessarily a more beautiful sound, though I, I would like to. 
uh, you know, just say tone-wise, I would like to be able to, pr to produce a more beautiful sound. But now I'm primarily interested in trying to work what I have, what I know, down into a more lyrical line. You know, that's what I mean by beautiful, by more lyrical, so to be, you know, easy, so easily understood. The sheet music the song plugger gave Coltrane would have included Hammerstein's lyrics, and music professor Ingrid Monson believes that Coltrane read the list of favorites and noticed the emphasis on things that are white. Cream-colored ponies, girls in white dresses, snowflakes, and silver-white winters. She believes he possibly saw the irony of a black man performing this song, especially in this year of such growth for the civil rights movement. Or did Coltrane see performing the song as a way to reach a broader audience? The Sound of Music had been on Broadway for less than a year at this point, but was already doing very well. It won the Tony for Best Musical in 1960, and the cast recording album was number one for 16 weeks that year. Why couldn't someone hear the song sung by Mary Martin at the Lute Fontaine Theater earlier in the evening, and then as the night progressed, make their way down to the Lower East Side to hear it again in a very different manner? Bruce Irvin doesn't find anything strange about Coltrane's choice to perform My Favorite Things. I'm not surprised that he chose this song because I think Coltrane was a musician who was very much in tune with popular music of the time. And I think he was probably a listener of a lot of different kinds of music. If you look at the track listing for the album called My Favorite Things, um, the other writers for the album are Cole Porter and Gershwin. So he was very much in tune with the American Songbook, and I think he really appreciated great melodies. He wrote a lot of great melodies, so I, I think that um, the song must have spoken to him, and he wanted to try to do a different version of it that that had something to say. You know, it's like doing a very interesting cover of a song. You take a song that is well written uh, with neat chord changes and a great melody. There's a lot to play with. There's directions to go that the brevity of pop music doesn't allow. One of the directions Coltrane would begin to go is a mood of Eastern mysticism and spirituality. Years before, Coltrane had been a heavy drinker, smoked all the time, and then started using heroin. These addictions began to interfere with his performance and reliability, so much so that Miles Davis fired him from his band in 1957. Coltrane says that event woke him up, and he knew he needed to make some changes. Inspired by the beliefs and discipline of Islam, he went through a religious transformation, quitting heroin completely, and discovering what he calls, quote, a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. One thing that pushed him in this spiritual musical direction was his specific choice of saxophone. Bruce Irvin explains more. Coltrane is using a soprano sax as the lead instrument. And he's traditionally been a tenor saxophone player to that point. Soprano sax was not commonly used in like 50s and 60s, especially with modal jazz. The soprano sax is much higher pitched and has this kind of like snake charmer type vibe. And when you hear people talk about Coltrane a lot of times, especially late era Coltrane, they will often talk about his great sense of um, mysticism and spirituality in this music and like that's something that he something really unique that he brings to the table and I think this is kind of a start to him exploring that. John Coltrane recorded the official studio version of My Favorite Things with his band from the Jazz Gallery on October 21st 1960 at Atlantic Studios in New York City. Nasui Erdogan produced the session. 
The song starts off simply enough, McCoy Tyner's piano passing through the chords one by one. But suddenly, it's still technically a waltz, but now it swings. And then begins the familiar melody. Coltrane plays the melody pretty straight, but he removes the and from the verses, such as raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Dropping that extra note allows him to hold out other notes longer. And a minute into the song, he introduces a bridge section. This part is all his own. It isn't in the original Rodgers and Hammerstein composition. After some variations on the melody, Coltrane sits out and lets McCoy Tyner take over. Around the five minute mark, it sounds like McCoy Tyner makes a mistake. But he leaves it in. This is a space where anything goes, and we get to hear it as it happens. Coltrane lets Tyner's piano solo go on for a full four minutes before he jumps back in. And of course, there are no words in this recording, but it's hard not to hear his saxophone nearly sing the line, these are a few of my favorite things. Coltrane lets out some wild scale runs, and suddenly you think to yourself, wait. We haven't heard when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad. But finally, after 12 minutes and 33 seconds, we do.
At the end of the nearly 14 minute recording, it sounds like Coltrane and his band are slowly drifting away until... And with a soft drum roll and a cymbal crash, the song ends. My Favorite Things gave John Coltrane the opportunity to express this bouncy, catchy melody, but with the repetition of so few chords underneath, he now had the room to take that melody and run wild with it. This sound was revolutionary for 1960. It was both familiar and transcendent. The 14-minute recording was so popular, Atlantic released an edited version that fit nicely on two sides of a 7-inch 45 RPM single. It would go on to be a radio hit. In 1964, everyone involved in The Sound of Music was working hard to promote the film before it was released the following spring. Rodgers and Hammerstein's publisher asked popular crooner Jack Jones if he would record My Favorite Things to get the song lodged in people's heads in anticipation of the film's premiere the following year. Jack Jones released his version of the song on his 1964 Christmas album in a style of his choosing, but huh, I wonder where he got the idea to swing it like that. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens Brown paper packages tied up with strings These are a few of my favorite things So we have to wonder, was John Coltrane's My Favorite Things a hit because the stage musical was a success and people already knew the song so well? Or did the popularity of Coltrane's version propel the song, and thus the musical, into a higher cultural awareness, making my favorite thing so ubiquitous that by 1965 the film was sure to be a hit? The influence one version had on the other is something we may never really know, but the influence the song had on popular culture is undeniable. I think Bruce Irvin would agree. You know, he ended up going in way more far-reaching directions. And uh, in, in ways that some people still find hard to listen to. I love this stuff, like the album Ascension. If you listen to that, it sounds almost nothing like my favorite things or the things that came before it. Because he was always stretching and trying new things. This was one of the only songs that he continued to play live for the rest of his life. Uh, while he was trying all these wild experiments, he would go back to my favorite things and play it. And I, I'm sure for some reasons it was a crowd pleaser, but it was also just something that he had fun exploring on. That this recording set a standard for the rest of his career is a real testament to its power. John Coltrane has said, my favorite things was, quote, my favorite piece of all those I have recorded. I don't think I would like to do it over in any way. Once again, Julie Andrews. I have always enjoyed singing my favorite things. It has such a strong and spare chord structure, and its lilting melody is irresistible. I feel Richard Rogers stands alongside the Strausses and Henry Mancini as one of the great waltz kings, and Oscar Hammerstein's brilliant lyrics render these songs unforgettable. Our theme music is performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Nelson Riddle, and written by Irving Berlin. Special thanks to Bruce Irvin for his insights on John Coltrane. 
Let's Face the Music is brought to you by We Own This Town. Find out more at letsfacethemusic.show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>